Thank you to our senior choir for that ministry of music. Also, thank you, Josh, for uh, ministering to us during our offertory. Appreciate that very much. Hope that uh, that whets your appetite a little bit to come back tonight for the full rendition of the cantata. Uh, if you haven't been here for one of those Sunday evening services in which we have the cantata, uh, you will find it to be an, an extremely a beautiful service. Uh, everything in the sanctuary is by candlelight. There are uh, candelabras at the end of each, well, uh, at the end of the pews. And it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful setting. Hope you'll come back tonight and enjoy the opportunity uh, to worship through song. There are certain ironies in life. Some are greater than others. Uh, one such irony is a person who has worked their whole life long installing fire alarms only to die in a fire. That is an irony. Uh, That which contradicts what one would normally expect. In the passage that is before us, there are quite a few ironies that uh, I want to point out this morning because I, I think that they shed an awful lot of light on a sovereign God's purpose and work in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin by looking at the irony of a king's decree who unwittingly serves the purpose of a sovereign God. We said that we were going to focus on the proclamation last week, and the proclamation was by the angel that said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we want to look at how Mary and Joseph came to be in Bethlehem, and how it was that Jesus was born and placed in a manger. Well, it starts with an earthly decree that centers around a very powerful man, Caesar Augustus, verse 1. Now it came to pass in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the nephew of Julius Caesar and one of the most powerful of all Caesars. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. It was said of him that he came to a Rome of brick and left it a city of marble. He transformed not just Rome, but the entire known world with its roads and his armies. At his funeral, his mourners comforted themselves with the belief that he was God and thus immortal. It was this Caesar Augustus who made a decree that all the world should be registered. So that the earthly decree of Caesar provides the explanation of a number of circumstances in our text. First, why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem and not in Nazareth. Verse 1, now it came down those days, a decree went out uh, from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this registration was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, everyone is to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So this decree was implemented in stages. It was followed in verse 3. And Joseph followed the decree as well. 
The decree of Caesar Augustus explains why there's no room in the inn. And thus how Jesus came to be placed in a manger. Notice verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The reason there's no room in the inn is because of verse 1. That uh, a decree went out that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Joseph was not the only individual, but one among many that was affected by this decree. Verse 3, all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And so people were coming from miles around, going to their hometown, the town of their ancestry, in order to be registered. Which swelled the population of Bethlehem immensely. It just overwhelmed this little town. It's very understandable why there would be no room in the inn. It's like uh, when the Super Bowl is in a city, try to get a motel room. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. There was no room in the city, in, the, in Bethlehem, because of this decree. The significance of Bethlehem in the city of David. I'm going to come back to that. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The baby being born in Bethlehem is important because Bethlehem is prophesied as the birthplace of the Messiah. It fulfills Micah 5 too. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be <coughs> among the fans of Judah, from you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This prophecy had already been understood as a messianic prophecy uh, even prior to Jesus' birth. If you remember, when the wise men come seeking to find out where Jesus is born, they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and come to worship him. And when Herod heard it, he began to ask. He asked the Pharisees, the scribes. And gathering all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote uh, Micah 5.7. So the Jewish leaders understood that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And indeed, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is identified as the city of David because David was the most notable person ever to come from Bethlehem. It's kind of like uh, Hope, Arkansas. Who ever heard of a Hope, Arkansas? You know what Hope, Arkansas is noted for? It's the birthplace of President Clinton. They put it on the map. It's a real dinky little town. But because President Clinton was born there, people have heard of Hope, Arkansas. Bethlehem is this dinky little town. But because David was born there, it took on significance. It was the birthplace of David. And the amazing thing, it was going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Notice, Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. They traveled to Bethlehem. Not many people lived in Bethlehem. Even in that era and time, it was a dinky little little village. It wasn't anything special. But it's where they had to go. 
What is significant is that Jesus is a descendant of David. For again, that was prophesied, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And uh, we are told in uh, Luke 2, 4, that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and family of David. It was said by the angel in Luke chapter 1 concerning Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. God uses the decree of Augustus to further authenticate that Jesus is indeed born from the lineage of David. So let me just stop here. One of the interesting little ironies is that it is important for, of two things. One, that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem. And two, that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David. Those are the two things that are prophesied in the scripture about the Messiah. This edict that results in Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem establishes two things. First, that his birth was in Bethlehem. And secondly, that he was in the house and lineage of David. Because that's why Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. That's where their roots were. That's where their ancestry was. It was not difficult for the Jews in that day and age to be able to trace their ancestry. But for a secular society who didn't trust the Jews and didn't put much confidence in their veracity, now we have the secular world, the Roman government, authenticating two things about the birth of Jesus. That it's in Bethlehem and he's a descendant of David through both Mary and Joseph. That's established, ironically, by this decree. But there's more to it than that. Because Jesus being born is a sign of the type of king he will be. Luke 2.12 says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, follow me for a moment. The reason for Caesar's decree that the whole world would be registered was for tax purposes. That's why the King James translates verse 1, And it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Which is it? Is it a census or is it a tax? The answer is it's both. It's a census that was made for tax purposes. They wanted to make sure that everybody is accounted for so they can be taxed. So they can be taxed. Taxes were extremely high under Caesar Augustus. You can imagine, if he's known as an emperor, when he came to Rome it was a brick, and when he left it was marble, that takes some money. And he was a taxing emperor, to be sure. And the Jews had a tremendous issue with paying taxes to Caesar. In fact, they debated highly whether or not it was even appropriate for them, according to Jewish law, to be paying taxes as well. And so, when Jesus grows older, the Pharisees and scribes, wanting to entrap or ensnare Jesus, give him what they think is a loaded question. 
They ask him whether it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. If he says you shouldn't pay taxes for Caesar, it's treasonous. If he says that you should pay taxes to Caesar, there are many within the Jewish community that are going to be outraged. So Luke says this, And they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous and or they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to anyone, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, Jesus was very much aware of their trickery. And we have these words. But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they became silent. This taxation under Caesar creates a tremendous irony, to be sure. Because if you remember that Jesus is going to be accused of teaching that the Jewish people were not to pay taxes to Caesar. He said they were to pay taxes. But the Jewish leaders, in Luke 23, 2, says they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the King. So, in claiming to be Christ, they said, He is surmounting an insurrection. He's trying to overthrow the Roman government. He's saying you shouldn't pay taxes. Now, Jesus had said just the opposite. They lied about what Jesus said. But the reason that Jesus is going to be put to death by the Roman government is based on that accusation. That he's the king of the Jews with the implication that the Jewish people should not pay taxes. All right. So that's what happens with uh, Jesus. He is accused and... uh, he is going to be put to death because of the whole situation with taxes. But another great irony is that these Jewish leaders who say that it, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because they shouldn't have allegiance to Caesar but to God, in John chapter 19, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate still wants to let them go. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. Jesus. The irony of this passage is that Joseph 
being a righteous man, who we looked at two weeks ago, travels to Bethlehem to be registered to pay taxes. And in the sovereignty of God, God uses this decree about taxation to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at the most inopportune moment. She's pregnant. She is well advanced in her pregnancy. She travels to Bethlehem. And while there, she delivers a child in a stable because there's no room in the inn, which would say that she wasn't put out. I don't think anybody's going to put her out right before she has a baby if she has a place in the inn. No, she got there. There is no place. It's time for her to deliver. She delivers a child. In the sovereignty of God, when the Jewish people want to rebel against Caesar, who think it's wrong to pay taxes, and to think that the Messiah is going to deliver them from all of this, is born under an edict that has something to do with taxes. That is an irony. An irony. But the irony is even greater than that. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, it says, And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a babe wrapped in lying in a manger. Unlike Caesar. And there are implicit comparisons to Caesar and to Jesus in this passage. Unlike Caesar... King Jesus will humble himself. Unlike Caesar, who wanted to be served and taxed the people greatly, Jesus comes to serve and lies in a manger. And that is just the beginning of his life. And all through his life, he did not have a place to lie his head. Unlike Caesar, who came to conquer, Jesus came to deliver. He came to be saved. The word Jesus means Savior. He came to save us from our sins. He came to save us from all the oppression that sin brings to pass. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it And to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Unlike Caesar, who brought a military peace, Jesus brings a peace through reconciliation with God. The reign of Augustus Caesar initiated an era of relative peace known as the Pax Romana or Roman peace. Despite continuous wars on the frontiers and one year long civil war over the imperial succession, the Mediterranean world remained at peace for more than two centuries. The Roman army was so powerful that they kept a peace in this world for 200 years. It was announced that there was going to be peace on earth. 
Jesus is not going to accomplish this through some great military campaign, which the Jewish people were looking forward to. But he was going to accomplish this through his death and his resurrection. There will be a worldwide peace. There is going to be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Complete peace on this earth. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. That is an irony. An irony. But the greatest irony of all is that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. Look at Luke chapter 2 verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. During his lifetime, Caesar allowed himself to be worshipped as a god. Uh, The people viewed Caesar as a god much in the same way that in the times of the pharaohs, many of the pharaohs were viewed as gods. Caesar died, Caesar Augustus, in A.D. 14. Augustus was declared a god by the Roman Senate to be worshipped by the Romans. And so, formally, upon his death in uh, A.D. 14, a law was passed that Caesar Augustus was to be worshipped as God. That was Roman law. His name, Augustus and Caesar, were adopted by every subsequent emperor. And the eighth month of the Roman calendar, previously named Sextilis, was renamed Augustus. And has come down to us to this very day. And so... We have the month of August as a result of Augustus Caesar and remembrance of him. He was a powerful individual that was declared to be a god. He wasn't. He died. He is no god. The irony is, here is the true and living God, Jesus Christ. Look with me at Luke chapter 2. Starting with verse 10. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is this day the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, as opposed to this bad news of a taxation that was going to encompass the whole world, now there's good news for the whole world. A Savior who has come. A deliverer. He will bring joy to all people. As opposed to misery and unhappiness. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior was Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. <coughs> you shall find the day wrapped in danger. <coughs> and I said last week. A sign served two purposes. One. To authenticate a message. How were they going to know this was going to be true? They'd find the babe lying in the manger, and sure enough, there he was. It also came to illustrate a message. This message that Jesus is a Savior, a deliverer, not oppressor, but a deliverer. Verse 11. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The irony is that this Messiah is not just an earthly ruler. He's not just a king. But he is God. He is God. When it says that he is Lord, 
That's what we are to understand from this. That he is God. Now there are a number of passages in the New Testament that we can go to that would certainly teach the deity of Jesus Christ. One would be John chapter 1, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was God. Colossians tells us, for in Him, that is in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. We're told that He's going to be called the Son of the Highest, because He is born of a virgin. Another teaching that Jesus is the Son of, that Jesus is God. It's throughout the New Testament. But what I'm trying to say to you is in the simple little proclamation, there is a tremendous amount of material conveyed in these simple words that Jesus is born in the city of David, a Savior, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, the anointed, prophesied, coming deliverer, and he is God. He is God. He's more than just an earthly ruler. He is God. How do we know that? Well, in Matthew chapter 2 it tells us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and came to worship him. Right from the beginning of his life, Jesus was worshipped. And God saw to it, in the great irony, that Jesus would be worshipped by these wise men. The song has it as three kings of the Orient. We don't know for sure they were kings, but it would be very much in keeping with this passage that that they were that kings would bow down to the true king. That's tradition. We don't know whether they were kings or not. We don't even know if there were three of them. Well, that comes from the fact that they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we do know this. Beyond a shadow of doubt, they came to worship him. And this word worship does, in fact, mean worship. They worshiped him. A worship that Satan desperately wanted to receive. Satan took Jesus up into a, a mountain and showed him all the different areas of this earth. And he said, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Same word. If you fall down and worship me. Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. A worship That was to be reserved for God alone. Matthew 4.10 Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Jesus said, You shall only worship God, none other. But Jesus allowed Himself to be worshipped. Jesus allowed Himself this place of prominence. Well, we could say, I suppose, that these wise men were wrong. They shouldn't have bowed down. They shouldn't have worshipped him. How else do we know that Jesus is God? How do we know that he's God in the flesh? Here we are to understand the proclamation, verse 11. 
who is Christ the Lord. In the context, it is abundantly clear that the term Lord refers to God. Turn with me in your Bibles going all the way back to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Concerning Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And now these words, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Luke one sixty eight. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. As we move on through the passage, the phrase Lord God gets shortened to just Lord. But it is consistently being applied to God. Notice Luke chapter 2 verse 9, which is right in the midst of our text. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. That Lord is God. He's God's angel. God sent him. And verse 9, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. That's God's glory. That's the Shekinah glory. When it's talking about the Lord, it's talking about God. Luke chapter 2, verse 15. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying one to another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. Referring to God. God made this known unto us. He is Christ, the Lord. He is Christ. God. God. Turn with me to yet another singular verse. Luke 2.26. This is after uh, Jesus as an infant is brought to the temple to be uh, blessed by Simeon. Luke 2.26. And it had been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There, the Lord's Christ is referring to God's Christ. God's Christ. That this anointed one, this servant of God. And so, Jesus, who is the Christ, the servant of God, the anointed one, the prophesied one, is being brought to the temple and dedicated to God. And so, he is the Lord's Christ. Liberals want to take Luke 2.26 and read it back into Luke chapter 2, verse 11, which says, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They say, no, we shouldn't translate it that way. We should translate it the Lord's Christ. In keeping with Luke 2.26. The only problem is, that's grammatically wrong. In Luke chapter 2 verse 11. 
There is no textual evidence to support that at all. Nothing. That would substantiate the fact it should be changed. Luke 2.11 is true. Luke 2.26 is true. He is God's Christ. He's also Christ who is God. And just because the Bible is just so amazingly put together, listen to one more verse. Acts 2, verse 36. Let all Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's not just the Lord's Christ. He's that. But he's also Christ the Lord. And that's the great irony. That God would be placed in this this manger for a crib because he's God. Here's a sign to show you that he came to humble himself, to serve you, to deliver you from your sins, not to bring you under oppression, not to bring you hardship, to bring about goodwill and peace on earth towards men. The rule of Jesus couldn't have looked more different than the rule of Caesar. Those kingdoms were so different. As he stood before Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't ruling like Caesar was ruling. He was ruling in an entirely different fashion. But ruling he was. So much so that God in his sovereignty used a decree by a wicked king to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Used what the Jewish people hated most about the Roman government, the paying of taxes to them, as the means of his grace to accomplish his sovereign will of getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And then this Caesar living in his beautiful palace and Jesus in a manger proclaiming what kind of deliverer he was going to be. He is Christ. He is God. That's the good news. It's to be to all people. It's to be to the entire world. Just as the proclamation was to the entire known world of its time, now we have a different proclamation of peace on earth and will toward men. There's a lot going on in this passage. The history to me is fascinating. But I would bring it up to date to you and just say this. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? He is the promised one. He's the anointed one. He fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy there is about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, and he will fulfill every prophecy about his coming in yet. He's Christ. He's God. That's why we worship him. 
That's why it's appropriate to worship Him. We are to worship no one else other than God. But we gather together this morning and unabashedly, unashamedly, worship Jesus. Because He's more than just a man. He's more than just an earthly deliverer. He's God in the flesh. And we worship Him. And He has delivered us. More than just from government. More than just from paying taxes. He's delivered us from sin. And all that accompanies it. All that goes with it. All that is going to be uh, manifest in the future. In closing, we're going to sing Joy of the World. Right? One of the favorite Parts of this hymn. Everybody's got their favorite Christmas carol. We heard this morning what Jack's was. Mine is this one. For listen to these words. Let earth receive her king, let everyone prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's what I love about this, this hymn. He came to remove our sins as far as the curse is found. Every element that is manifested by the curse, every consequence of sin, every alienation from God, he came to set everything right. This hymn, as I've said many times, is really not fulfilled in the first coming completely. It's fulfilled in the second coming. It's inaugurated at Christ's birth. It is fully accomplished when Jesus Christ comes from heaven a second time. And at that point, there is going to be, literally, a peace on earth that is complete. Every Government will come under his authority. Everything will be done on the face of this earth just as he intends it to be. And we're to see in the foreshadowing how God in his sovereignty can even take a wicked decree that is hated by all who is seen as opposing the mind and will of God to bring out about the fulfillment of his prophecy concerning the birth of his son and the reign that's going to be established. Our sovereign God can do it. And it's testified even in this passage. Join with me if you would. It's in hymn number 120, Joy to the World. <laughs> 